our scripture reading today is from 2 Samuel chapter 18. So sticking with where we've been over the past month and a half or so, and you will notice that we have really um, trusted Austin with a doozy. So it wasn't intentional, by the way, although it probably seems like it that by, by this point because he always gets some challenging ones. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 18. So this is one of those R-rated stories that we find in our scriptures. So I think, uh, I think we're good to read it. Beginning in verse 5, we're going to skip around a little bit. Beginning in verse 5. And the king gave this command to Joab, Abishai and Ittai. For my sake, deal gently with young Absalom. And all the troops heard the king give this order to his commanders. So the battle began in the forest of Ephraim, and the Israelite troops were beaten back by David's men. There was a great slaughter that day, and 20,000 men laid down their lives. The battle raged all across the countryside, and more men died because of the forest than were killed by the sword. During the battle, Absalom happened to come upon some of David's men. He tried to escape on his mule, but as he rode beneath the thick branches of a great tree, his hair got caught in the tree, his mule kept going and left him dangling in the air. Jumping down to verse 14. Enough of this nonsense, Joab said. Then he took three daggers and plunged them into Absalom's heart as he dangled, still alive, in the great tree. Ten of Joab's young armor bearers then summoned Absalom and killed him. Jumping down now to verse 31. Then the man from Ethiopia arrived and said, I have good news for my lord the king. Today the Lord has rescued you from all those who rebelled against you. What about young Absalom, the king demanded? Is he all right? And the Ethiopian replied, May all of your enemies, my lord the king, both now and in the future, share the fate of that young man. The king was overcome with emotion. He went up to the room over the gateway and burst into tears. And as he went, he cried, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, that was a doozy. Before I get started, anybody else want to give this a shot? <laughs> okay, yeah. That's what I thought. Well, sometimes the lectionary throws you a softball, and you get John 3.16 or something uh, beautiful and easy. Um, other times you get 2 Samuel 18 and Absalom uh, hanging in a tree. Have you ever been so close to something that you were unable to see it for what it really was? So maybe a, a, a family tradition, um, and you, you know, you're accustomed to doing something as a family until somebody comes um, who's not a part of your family is invited to a, a family gathering and sees you, um, you know, uh, eating egg salad sandwiches and, you know, singing a certain song. Not that this is uh, autobiographical, but... If, you know, they come and they, they recognize just how odd uh, maybe some of your family traditions are. Or 
um, maybe um, it's a, a word that you have always pronounced to yourself a certain way until you say it aloud and you get a, a look from a friend, uh, quizzical. Is that, is that how you say that word? I, I don't. I don't think so. For me, the example is, I heard a story of somebody who used the word uh, befaffled as a combination of, I think, baffled and befuddled, um, which, when you think about it, as a word for confused, really befaffled is the, the perfect word uh, to say that you're confused. Or maybe it's a, a song lyric, um, a, a lyric of a song that you've, you've always sung a certain way to yourself. I'm looking for knowing looks here. Um, for me, the example is TLC's 1990-something hit, Waterfall. Um, or maybe it was Waterfalls, but the lyric is, don't go chasing waterfalls. You know the song? And to me, I did not know this until I <laughs> was seated in the back seat next to my older sister, and um, her friend was on the other side. And for whatever reason, the song was on the radio. For whatever reason, I, I decided to, to belt it out as Go-Go uh, go Jason Waterfall is actually what I thought the lyric was. And they both looked at me and said, what did you just say? And I said, Go-Go Jason Waterfall. That's what the song says. And of course that's wrong and they have never let me forget that. But maybe there's something that you're so close to that um, you just think is, is normal. You've considered it as normal until somebody else comes in and says, I don't, I don't know that that's so normal. For me, uh, growing up, I have come to realize that that experience for me was junior Bible quiz. I've talked about junior Bible quiz a couple of times, so you may have, have heard me say this before, uh, but I was involved in a program called Junior Bible Quiz, which is basically a quiz bowl program for um, Bible trivia that we had at our church growing up. So you would travel with a team of six or eight elementary school students and your kids leader, and you'd um, do like a quiz bowl thing against other churches. So you'd have all these um, answers that you'd memorize. There was something called a quiz master who read the questions. Um, there were 20 questions in a match. You buzzed in um, when you knew the answer. And the goal was to memorize not only the answers, but to memorize the questions so that you could buzz in before the question ended. And one of the questions that is etched into my memory, so you can see here, this was normal for me, but when I talk about it to other people who are unfamiliar with JBQ, they kind of give me a look like, oh boy. Um, and so memorizing the questions and the answers produces in you kind of a mixture of, and I love JBQ, let me say that from the start, it has influenced me greatly, but uh, it has a tendency, if you're not careful, to produce in you a, a mixture of um, like self-righteousness and uh, crippling nerdiness, let me just say. <laughs> which is kind of a dangerous cocktail as you're headed into early adolescence. But one of, <laughs> one of these, one of the questions, <laughs> any other JBQ people? Okay, yeah, <laughs> JBQ survived. Maybe we should have like a support group afterwards. Uh, speaking of support groups, anybody who's involved in sound or audio, we're gonna have a brief meeting after the service. And that is true. That's a real announcement that I forgot to mention to Matt. 
But one of the questions in JBQ was, how did Absalom die? And this is etched into my memory. I think this is verbatim, but the answer is Joab, as we just read, Joab killed Absalom after his hair got caught in a tree and left him hanging. So what an odd question, right, for an elementary school student to memorize. Um, it seemed completely natural to me, but you can imagine all of these eager elementary school students uh, quickly reciting the answer to this question, Joab killed Absalom after his hair got caught in a tree and left him hanging. Just, just such an odd, uh, doesn't seem to be much edifying in it. And so here we are today. Sometimes we might look at Old Testament narratives like this one and think, what could possibly be edifying about this? If we believe our scriptures are true and that they're useful for teaching, rebuking, training in righteousness, all of those things from 2 Timothy, where does that leave us on, on this scripture? And in recent weeks, Matt's mentioned that we've been going through the story of David for the last few weeks, and Matt has provided us with some really helpful insights about how to approach these difficult passages, which I hope you've, you've caught. So Matt said, when we encounter tough stories, our task becomes self-examination. And because we have the supreme benefit of reading after Jesus, so we're reading these Old Testament texts, but we're reading after Jesus, our task also becomes locating Christ's likeness in the text. So this isn't new with us. This is not a new way to read the scripture. This has existed for centuries. So Christians have been asking some version of this question upon encountering difficult texts. And the question is, in light of what I know about Jesus, where can I find him here? So if we develop the habit of reading this way, Old Testament, New Testament, any scriptural text, the act of reading and interpreting scripture can actually train us how to look for Christ in unexpected places. And it can really form us into Christ's likeness if we allow it to. I recently heard one theologian put it this way. He said, we are not saved from interpretation, but through it. So it's not as if, as when we come to faith, when we come to Christ, it's not as if we no longer have to deal with the difficult parts of the Bible because really everything is answered. Instead, that's when the task really begins. And the way we interpret has the potential to form us. And with the help of the Spirit and the community here, even at, at Solid Rock, scriptural interpretation can even continue the work of salvation if we allow it to. So again, 2 Timothy, scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness. How is scripture useful for training in righteousness? Well, I think through this act of interpretation. So there are moments in these difficult narratives that confound us and prompt us to choose between a response that is uh, sin-influenced and unfaithful and a response that is faithful and Christ-like. So when the text put, puts these before us, which, which will we choose? In order to see the first of those moments in today's text for what it is, which occurs in verse 5, when David gives the instruction to his commanders, have mercy on the young man Absalom, in order to hear that for the, the scandal that it is, we need a little background. Absalom, who we haven't met yet in the narrative in the scriptures that we've looked at, is David's son. So he's introduced in an earlier chapter. And by the time we get to today's passage in chapter 18, 
Absalom is staging an all-out rebellion. He's trying to usurp his father's throne, undermine his father's authority, and really turn people away from, from David and from his kingship. So how does he do that? In 2 Samuel chapter 15, we read this, verses 2 through 4. Absalom got up early every morning and went out to the gate of the city. When people brought a case to the king for judgment, Absalom would ask where in Israel they were from, and they would tell him their tribe. Then Absalom would say, you've really got a strong case here. It's too bad the king doesn't have anyone to hear it. Can you hear that in Absalom's voice? Ah, isn't it just too bad that the king doesn't have anybody to hear it? I wish I were the judge. Oh, boy. Then everyone could bring their cases to me for judgment. And, of course, I would give them justice. I've heard the, the definition of loyalty as protecting another's reputation as if it were your own. So if loyalty is protecting another's reputation as if it were your own, this is really the, the antithesis of loyalty, the height of disloyalty. And Absalom is intentionally demeaning his father. He's really doing everything he can to subvert and to delegitimize his father's authority. So if, if that seems mild and harmless, Absalom has also made a public mockery of his father's kingship by sleeping with his concubines on the roof of the palace in view of all Israel. So if you really want some doozies, um, go back and read the intervening text uh, between chapter 12 and chapter 18 to read about the things that Absalom is doing. So if we're going to interpret this text faithfully, we want to put ourselves in David's shoes and ask what are David's options? How should he respond to this? He still has the power. He's still king. His first option then would be to follow the commands outlined in Torah. So Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 18 through 21. Suppose a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, check, who will not obey his father or mother, check, even though they discipline him. In such a case, the father and mother must take the son to the elders as they hold court at the town gate. The parents must say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious and refuses to obey. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of this town must stone him to death. In this way, you will purge this evil from among you and all Israel will hear about it and be afraid. So option number one, drag him into public, announce the sin, Everybody pick up your stones, and we take care of things. That's, really, that's David's first option. That's, that's at least on the table, right? He's in a position of power. He's going to go by the letter of the law. This is an option for him. It's not the option he chooses, but it's at least before him. Option number two, as we've seen in recent weeks, perhaps David could use the considerable power he still has as king to manipulate this situation and orchestrate Absalom's death, as he did in the case of Uriah. He could even do it in a, in a really humiliating way. So to the extent that David has been humiliated, he could go about humiliating Absalom and orchestrate his death. So all he has to do really is what he's done before. He can move the pawns on the chessboard. He can even avoid guilt and he can just make the problem disappear. We read, uh, we read a few weeks ago in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 15, when David is doing just that, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. Then pull back so that he will be killed. 
Contrast that with the first verse of our text from today. The king gave the command to his commanders, for my sake, deal gently with the young man Absalom. So with this background information on on Absalom, we can really hear the strangeness of verse 5. Think about it. There's a transition here from where David is um, going out of his way to kill an innocent man, Uriah, to going out of his way to ensure the safety of a guilty man. So if we had any doubts about the sincerity of David's confession that we read about in our um, passage from last week, or any doubts about the, the ability of God to transform a situation, transform a heart, this verse should really put that to rest. It's a big change that's taken place when we compare these two texts. In 2 Samuel, reading on chapter 18, verses 6 through 8, we read about the devastation of the battle. So the battle began in the forest of Ephraim, and the Israelite troops were beaten back by David's men. There was a great slaughter that day, and 20,000 men laid down their lives. The battle raged all across the countryside, and more men died because of the forest than were killed by the sword. So reading about this devastation, we're far from Jerusalem. We're... um, out in the woods, and nature almost becomes a character in this story, claiming lives, and it really takes center stage, nature does, in verse 9, in this bizarre uh, occurrence of Absalom's death. And this is the verse that nine-year-old me really cherishes. (laughs) During the battle, Absalom happened to come come upon some of David's men. He tried to escape on his mule, But as he rode beneath the thick branches of a great tree, his hair got caught in the tree. His mule kept going and left him dangling in the air. And we read later that Joab's men come and and take care of things. They stab him and he is gone. What an odd way to die, right? I mean, this seems so just bizarre and weird, and it is, and we have to let that bizarreness sort of work on us. But there are some really crucial ironies here that I think um, we need to pick up on. The first is um, the fact that he gets caught by his hair. Absalom gets caught by his hair. So in 2 Samuel chapter 14, when Absalom is introduced, we read this in uh, verses 25 and 26. Now Absalom was praised as the most handsome man in all Israel. He was flawless from head to foot. He cut his hair only once a year. This is what the uh, literary types would call foreshadowing. And then, only because it was so heavy, when he weighed it out, it came to five pounds. So the source of Absalom's pride becomes the source of his demise. So that's kind of the most obvious irony if we've been reading um, kind of this narrative continuously. Secondly, there's another irony here. Uh, the mule in this period was considered the, the, the usual... Um, the fitting mount for princes. So Absalom losing his mule from under him as he's caught in this tree is an image of his, him really losing his royal seat. So how dramatic is this, right? His, his um, throne that he's trying to usurp literally rides out from under him. And thirdly, um, another irony, think about the, the public humili- humiliation that Absalom has caused David. Um, And now here he is, dangling by his hair in full view of his enemies. Think about that public humiliation. So there's at least, I mean, there are layers of irony at work here. 
So it's maybe not so, doesn't seem so bizarre anymore. I mean, it's still odd and bizarre, but when you look at it through these lenses, it's, it's almost too perfect, right? How fitting is his death, at least from David's perspective? So again, when the narrative reaches this really troubling point, the focus shift, shifts back to David's response. How will David respond to the death of his enemy? Now, David is no stranger to death. How many psalms attributed to David declare praises to God for wiping out Israel's enemies, right? Um, many close to David have died. And up to this point in the narrative, when um, somebody close to David dies, we've, we've known a David who gives really eloquent eulogies. So when Jonathan and Saul die, David gives this elo eloquent eulogy. When David's infant son dies earlier in this narrative, uh, David speaks somber words about his own mortality and the irreversibility of death. So when David encounters death, he turns it into something eloquent and even as a praise hymn back to God. So when David gets the news of Absalom's death, maybe we expect something similar. We're primed and ready for another um, eloquent springing forth of, of praise. But we read something a little different in verses 31 and 32. Then the man from Ethiopia arrived and said, I have good news for my Lord the King. Today the Lord has rescued you from all those who rebelled against you. What about the young man Absalom, the king demanded? Is he all right? And the Ethiopian replied, May all of your enemies, my lord the king, both now and in the future, share the fate of that young man. So this is the second place where the text confounds our notions of, of what's really going on and forces us to sort of reorient our own response, reorient ourselves. David's enemy is dead. And like the messenger, we might be tempted to deliver this news as a sort of praise hymn. David, get ready for this news. You're going to love it. I mean, you've been made safe. The one who actively sought your harm has met a bitter end. And if that weren't enough, let me tell you, it was perfect. It was perfectly orchestrated. It must have been God, right? All of these things fell into place how fitting was Absalom's demise? It was so perfectly orchestrated. It, it, it must have been God. It would have been so easy for David to see Absalom's death as God's favor. However, his own experience of forgiveness prompts him to see the death of his enemy not as a cause for celebration, but a cause for mourning. Remember the mercy that David has just received after this episode with Bathsheba and the sin he's committed and piling sins on top of that, orchestrating the death of Uriah and Nathan coming and, and giving this prophetic word, David becoming so upset after Nathan gives this parable about evil and Nathan says, you are the man. You are the evil one. And then Nathan goes and uh, pronounces God's forgiveness over David. It says your sins are forgiven. Despite all of these mounting injustices that you have uh, made possible. Your sins are forgiven. I'd like to think that maybe that is what's influencing David's response here. The uh, theologian Chris Green 
says, there are things in scripture that are indeed evil or strange. And they are there for us as scriptures because God has purposed them to generate difficulties for us. I think this text has enough difficulties to go around. Difficulties that test our patience or frustrate our expectations. But he says this, he says, the spirit uses troubling texts to provoke responses from us in order to mirror back to us the images of ourselves and others, exposing what otherwise remains hidden from us and in the darkness of our hearts. So in this way, I think interpreting difficult texts like this one is preparation for the life of faith. So God is at work here to reveal what we insist on keeping hidden, this desire for um, the death of our enemies or um, for um, God to have acted a certain way but maybe we're not trusting in God, we're trusting in our own sense of the way that we would like things to work out. Think back to David's encounter with the prophet Nathan that that, that I just mentioned. Um, Nathan speaks this parable, David's furious at the injustice it depicts, and Nathan reveals that David himself is the evil man described in the parable. But the responsibility still rests upon David to respond faithfully, to repent. So will he repent and receive God's mercy, or will he reject the word from Nathan? Matt pointed out, as we were going through this text, that he's well within his rights to have Nathan killed, right? Uh, He could reject this word, but instead he responds by throwing himself on God's mercy. So in the text for today, we see how that prophetic word, coupled with the reception of God's mercy, has changed the course of David's life. It's changed the way that he responds to this news. And I think the question for us is, will we allow scripture coupled with the reception of God's mercy to to work out the same transformation in our own lives? Uh, Again, it it is so striking to me, and I I hope by including the scripture reading in full at first, I I hope you sort of just caught the, how bizarre this is. But it's striking to me how easily David could have justified praising God for Absalom's death how perfectly things had worked out. After all, God had promised that David's reign would would endure, and this makes that promise possible, right? Again, uh, Chris Green says something that I think is really helpful. We already sang a song about Satan uh, blowing something out, um, so I want to mention Satan one more time. (laughs) Satan wants us to take God's promises to mean what they do not, in fact, mean, so that we are confused about what we can and should expect from God. So if David took that promise to mean something that it did not, in fact, mean, he may have rejoiced in the death of his son. And David, instead, gives us a clue about what a Christ-like response to the news of death, whether of loved ones or enemies, or in this case, both, might look like. In verse 33, the king was overcome with emotion. He went up to the room over the gateway and burst into tears, and as he went, he cried, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. If only I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. What we get instead of an eloquent praise hymn is just this blubbering mess of a man who is mourning. David's reception of mercy has really reoriented both his response and what he expects from God, how he expects God to act. Eugene Peterson had this to say about this episode, and I love the way he encapsulates how this sort of prefigures the gospel story. He said, at the farthest descent from Jerusalem, deep 
in the wilderness forest of Ephraim, David's story most clearly anticipates and most nearly approximates the gospel story. The story that Jesus extends into our stories, passion stories, stories of suffering, but suffering that neither diminishes nor destroys us, but makes us more human, prayerful, and loving. So musicians, if, if you want to come, we'll prepare to take communion. I think um, this text does a couple of things. It first takes our notion of justice and flips it on its head. So Absalom is threatening to strip everything from, from David, to strip his kingship and to take it over. And we see at the outset of this text, David's one concern, his sole concern is that Absalom, his enemy, is shown mercy. Our sense that the villain should get what's coming to him is frustrated when David gives this command to his commanders. And we throw ourselves on God's mercy and so eagerly lay claim to it sometimes, but in this passage, that mercy, if we see it on display, has the effect of just confounding our, our sense of, of right and wrong. And I think it's good to, to lean into that tension. So having received God's mercy in Christ, this text asks us, who are we to withhold it from others? Even those, and maybe especially those with whom we are most at odds. And secondly, this text unsettles our notions of what would constitute a happy ending for David. The news that should be received with celebration is instead for David cause to lament. And the passage is instructive insofar as it leads us to lean into that tension, to examine it, and to examine our own hearts. How do we respond when uh, someone who is clearly intending our, our harm, uh, when something bad befalls them? Again, as recipients of God mercy, God's mercy, how does that shape the way that we respond to those situations? And are there places in our own lives in which we've given up hope because we expected God to move in a certain way and he hasn't, does it mean that God's not at work? Might it mean that God's at work in a different way? And can we allow ourselves to see that? Are we in a position, by the way that we've interpreted not only the scriptural text, but our surroundings, have we trained ourselves to see Christ in our situation in such a way that we are uh, reoriented so that we can see God at work, maybe not in the way that we expected him to work, but in a, in a new way? Uh, in a redemptive way. I'm going to pray a prayer as we uh, prepare to take communion. If you'd stand. And if you're new with us, um, we'll just take communion right here. We'll have the elements, and you can form two lines down the center aisle and uh, receive the elements on your own as you uh, head back to your seat. The prayer this morning is simply this. Father God, Lord of mercy, Train us to see as you see. In difficulties, help us to see that you are there. In suffering, train our eyes to see your presence. Lord, reframe the way that we see you 
and others in light of your mercy, in light of the gift of your Son. We pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.